0: we're just laser focused on getting us to the top line and bottom line that we want to be and and knowing the path that we need to follow to get there and then in terms of deal making certain things fit to accelerate that path certain things don't and but you got to have that goal in mind and that's what gets me fired up is like knowing that 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 big revenue big ebitda number is right there we got to run at it we got to stay disciplined along the way that's plenty of fire in the belly for me.
1: The Pathfinder podcast is presented to you by Onsarada. Onsarada is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A capital raising divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Since 2005, Onsarada has been trusted in over 24,000 transactions and powered over 1 trillion worth of deals. Onsarada is a secure space that includes workflow tools, AI powered data rooms, built in question and answer and integration frameworks. It's the data room trusted by modern dealmakers. You can start for free today at Ansarada.com. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me, Anserada.com for your next winning outcome. Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Anserada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Tahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Chief Financial Officer at DraftKings, Jason Park. As more states welcome sports betting and pass laws allowing for daily fantasy sports, Jason has provided key strategic guidance to DraftKings that has boosted their success. Prior to joining DraftKings, Jason spent 10 years working at Bain Capital, where he was an operating partner focused on technology investments. Before that, he spent nine years with McKinsey & Company. Jason joins me today to share some of his insights into the gaming industry, talk about how technology has revolutionized it, and offer his opinion for what the future holds in store as more and more companies look to investing in gaming. Welcome, Jason. How are you? And I'm so excited for you to be here, most importantly, because let's just just deal with it front and center. We went to the best, the greatest, and the only university in this world. Go, Go blue. blue.
0: Go blue. Go blue. Colorado State, September 3rd. I checked the lines and a 27.5 points spread. <laughs> Money line at minus 5,000 over under 57.5.
1: DraftKings. <laughs> That's that's what that's what I love about our conversation is because you have all the stats written down right there in front of you. So, you know, that was to be expected. So I appreciate it. I frankly don't have the line on like what's going to happen this year, but hopefully you know what our school is going to do. You know, what do you think? What do you think Michigan is going to do this year? You
0: know, I'm I'm always optimistic about the Wolverines and my family gears up for Saturday football time for daddy. And so I'm just, I'm excited for college football and the NFL to be starting back up in a few weeks. And it's a fun time of the year. And I just want to say, like, I'm totally honored, humbled to be here with you. I mean, we graduated. not only do we go to the University of Michigan, but we went at the same time. I mean, I was... That was my senior year.
1: I saw you all the the time. What are you talking (laughs) about? We were giving each other high fives going through the Diag and, Uh, you know,
0: hanging out all the
1: time. Number
0: 55 national championship (laughs) team. That is a very instrumental part of my life, man. So thank you for everything you did on that team.
1: No, I, I appreciate it. I'm sure there were some days where, you know, you weren't necessarily happy with my performance, but other days that you were. And look, we've both been and we've both had success in different ways and alas we meet here on the pathfinder. So let's let's get started. One of the things that I'm always interested in when I talk to so many amazing people including yourself is like how people have been influenced by their early experiences and their career path in terms of like how it forged their way later in life. So were there any major events or experiences in your early life that really impacted your later decisions to be where you are, aside from Michigan, of course.
0: Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks for asking. I just a little bit about myself. I was born in Delaware. I moved to Atlanta in the seventh grade. I have an awesome family, super supportive mom and dad, and really, my parents are, have been, continue to be just awesome people, and and really pretty relaxed and just encouraged me to find my passion in life and do, you know, do something that that I love doing every single day. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to have had that happen. I, I think in terms of an instrumental moment, I think about summer of 1993, I was doing a, a program at Cornell and, you know, you, you're taking classes and, and stuff, but you also chose an elective, like a career elective. And I chose mm-hmm. business as my, as my career elective you know i'm a, i'm in high school at this time and i vividly remember going to you know the corning factory and the corning museum which is not far from ithaca and for some reason that sticks out as a moment when when we're walking the factory and and everything is running through my head around you know production product development customer segmentation pricing distribution manufacturing and i remember thinking about all the the facets of a business. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel like that was a moment where I just really got excited about what business was and, mm-hmm. um, you know, great facilitator for that for that business career elective. And, and that was the moment that I look back on and say, I wanted to apply to a college that had a great undergraduate business program uh, and then continue to pursue it. So that was, you know, not maybe not the most exciting story, but but it was probably, you know, that phase of my life when I could see sort of all the dots of a business in real life.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like when, you know, for me, it was like this moment of curiosity where I was able to kind of run into so many different people from the Michigan background. I mean, I had a choice when I was playing football where I wanted to go to school. I didn't think I really understood at that moment because I wasn't really paying too much attention to sports. I was thinking more about my education. Sure. But like the two together, once I really figured that out after I met a couple of different people that were graduates from the university of Michigan, I knew that there was like an ultimate path that ran right through Ann Arbor. And that could take me essentially anywhere. You know, I had, I saw this pamphlet and I saw the block M on top of the globe. And I was like, school that has the audacity to say that they're greater (laughs) than the world. Like, what are you talking about? So I can understand when you walk in somewhere and you see all these different things and you're just wowed by it. You put all the pieces together and the matrix all of a sudden falls and you just like, you're able to read it. And and so you, you kind of made your way through and you begin your career at McKinsey and company, which what was that like? You know, I never had that, that opportunity to kind of go into the consulting world and, you know, you got to do deals at a young age and, you know, you became a vet in the game, you know, were there any deals in particular that you were involved with during these days that also had a big impact? Or what was it like when you first walked in the door?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot in that. But yeah, you, you know, you go you're, you you go to Michigan, awesome school. I transferred to the undergraduate business program, which as you know, you do as like a junior there. I thought I wanted to be an accountant, man. I was going to be an auditor. I did an internship at a big five accounting firm. And I began to, like like life, you just sort of You start with a wide range of things that you could do, and you start narrowing it down. And then I began to feel passionate about helping businesses Mm. and improving businesses. And Mm -hmm. I continue to think that McKinsey is just one of the best places to start a career in business, just amazing training on all the foundational skills in analytics. Quantitative analytics, you know, how to structure a problem, written communication, verbal communication, people leadership. It's just just a really great mm. place to to be in your early twenties and, and just soak it all in. And yeah, you know, I think I think McKinsey's known more for its management consulting, but I, I did get to spend about 12 or 18 months in Seoul, South Korea, where that, that office does do more MA stuff and and did work on a few transactions over there. The most memorable was very memorable by the way was the the sale of the remaining 50% stake of Oriental Breweries OB Lager a beer a domestic beer brand to what was then known as Interbrew today of course known as AB InBev and and it was just an amazing learning experience to think about all the all the work that went into that we were you know on the sell side Thinking about mm-hmm. the diligence, how to value the business, macro factors around Korean consumer GDP and beer consumption, all the way down to micro factors like the cost of barley and malt, and how to model out the economics of this business so that you could come up with a, a fair valuation that you felt like you were going to receive as the seller of the business. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a long process, but. So rewarding. I had, I had great mentors around me at the time who knew a lot about MA. And it's been fun to follow that story. Innerbrew, I, I think I learned a lot from Interbrew and, and you know, it made a lot of sense to me. They were this global powerhouse that had essentially technology, which was global beer brewing know-how, combining that with local brands in different countries around the world, it, it's just really, really interesting and and It makes all the sense in the world in terms of their value creation plan and how they how they generate returns for their shareholders. And it's also been fun to watch it transpire. I mean, mm. OB Lager ended up trading to KKR and then trading back to AB InBev. And then they did, they just, and watching and
1: they were all over the place.
0: Yeah, they just they just trade it back and forth. And watching AB Inbev run that playbook in geographies all over the world. So I that, that was certainly. Very, very memorable.
1: I think the most important question is, did you get any beer out of it?
0: Uh, hard to remember, but I'm sure I'm sure there was some <laughs> beer consumption that went on in Seoul, South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: that's what I love about the, the deal-making space is that, you know, you not only get an opportunity to learn about businesses and you get to learn about people, but you also get to learn about the products, too. I mean, I think yeah. that's, like, one of the most fundamental pieces, and I, I don't think a lot of times people really can consider that. You know, I remember having some conversations with some friends about some deals that they were doing. And I was like, why are you doing the deal? They're like, well, I like flying. I like traveling. I like staying at different hotels. Like how do you kind of think about, you know, not only just the deal, but the products that you might be dealing with. So, you know, you went through this track of of McKenzie and then you went to Bain. What was the difference between the two? Because, you know, Bain is a little bit of a departure from what McKinsey might have been like what was that experience in the transition
0: yeah i think the trajectory was moving on from mckinsey which is clearly an advisory role type learning experience and into being capital private equity which is absolutely on the principal investing side and putting mm-hmm. your own money to work behind companies that you believe in so that was that was really the migration moving from sort of understanding businesses, thinking of ideas on how to improve performance, and then into Bain Capital where you're you're utilizing those skills to actually make money for your investors and really putting your own money where your mouth is on that that kind of stuff.
1: And some of the stuff that you're working on were like tech investments and yep. you probably were involved, some big deals. And on on our podcast, we talk a lot about that deal-making mindset. So what do you think are some of the Key features, if you will, of operating in this type of type of frame of mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, at Bain Capital, Bain Capital, big big organization. There's a bunch of different as- asset classes. I was in the private equity sort of traditional leverage buyout group, and within that, there were more traditional deal side folks, and I was part of the the portfolio group, which really focused on working with the companies we owned. Mm-hmm. Certainly getting involved in later stage diligence, making sure that we had a view on on what we thought we could do with the business. But I think it really comes down to, you know, when you're diligencing an asset, considering buying it, just having a, a really strong sense of what are you going to do with it once you own mm. it? Why? Like, what can we do with this company that nobody else could do? And boiling mm. that down to three, four, five, not more than that, three, four, five big value creation drivers that you think you can improve the EBITDA of that business sustainably, not short-term EBITDA wins, but like really make it a better company. And why do you think you can do that that nobody else can do that? And then once you own it, making that happen over four, five, six, seven, eight years.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you think one of the biggest pieces of that success is that passion and and curiosity as well? You know, because you go into, you're looking at these businesses, you're like, okay, This is going to be a great company, but like sometimes, sometimes I think as I've seen some businesses, some people lose that edge and they don't necessarily want to go after and grow the business. And I always find it comes back to this lack of curiosity, lack of passion. Like people just get comfortable in it. How do you contemplate that as you approach the business in order to make sure that that passion and curiosity continues?
0: No, absolutely. I think I think passion curiosity is so important. I think. When you think about these investments that you're making, <clears throat> there's oftentimes just some you know not to bring it back to football, but good old fashioned blocking and tackling that's going to help improve the EBITDA of the business but but growth growth is important, and you've got mm-hmm. to get into the heads of the customers and think about innovation and think about what could we be doing to please our customers even more that provides incremental revenue growth opportunities to the business. So, you know, mm. you got to you got to be passionate about understanding your customers and and not every customer is the same. So, thinking about the different types of customers you have and getting curious about, you know, why do they buy your product? Why don't they buy the competitor's product? What is it about that your company that they like? And what more could you be doing for them? I don't think you get to those answers unless you've got some real curiosity.
1: How do you get yourself hyped up? How do you get yourself? You know, you're talking about the blocking and tackling, you know, it's like you you could spend all this time behind the desk and looking at these different deals and you're looking at people that have that passion and curiosity, but you at the same time, you have to have that drive and that motivation too. So how do you get yourself off the sidelines and into the game and what really gets you into that deal-making mindset?
0: Oh man. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm in the game a lot.
1: uh you know not just from the deal making but just was it from, two cups of coffee and like four pancakes and you're just ready to rock like the rock I mean like what what are you doing like how are you hyping yourself up getting ready to go
0: I don't think I need you know I am a I am a one cup of coffee at seven o'clock every morning I don't drink coffee <laughs> after that but I think more importantly it's just laser focus on achieving that big EBITDA number that we know is possible I'm talking about the draftkings. Situation where we're in right now, we're just laser focused on getting us to the top line and bottom line that we want to be and and knowing the path that we need to follow to get there. And then in terms of deal making certain things fit to accelerate that path, certain things Mm. don't. And but you got to have that goal in mind. And that's what gets me fired up is like knowing that 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 big revenue, big EBITDA number is right there. We got to run at it. We got to stay disciplined along the way. That's plenty of fire in the belly for me.
1: Well, I want to talk a lot about DraftKings, but I want to come back to like one question about, about Bain Capital. Yeah. You know, were there any, you know, just like there might be an impact in that moment when you kind of were able to kind of see where you wanted to go in life. Were there any specific deals that you did at Bain that, that you could talk about that all of a sudden got you to think about deal-making differently? Because you know, each stop along the way, each conversation that we had, each deal, each EBITDA that we're trying to reach, put it like, affects us, right? So yeah. was there something specifically along the way that kind of allowed you to think differently or maybe the same way or confirm the way that you were thinking about that deal-making mindset from that point on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I learned so much at Bank Capital. I worked with such amazing people. So thankful for my time there. I think I learned – I mean, that is the number one thing, just – to know the three, four, or five most important value creation drivers and be mm-hmm. relentless and consistent about attacking those and making improvements on those things focus and prioritization. That's certainly not something I had going into being capital and, and something I learned along the way. You know what comes to mind right now is I, I had the fortune of working in some club deals with Blackstone, Advent worked with Berkshire partners on a couple club deals and it was always I think that those were moments working with those folks that I saw the the consistency in our approach and their approach which is just coming back to this like look there's three there's there's not a lot of things there's three four five things we need to get really right and this thing is mm-hmm. going to generate a lot more sustainable EBITDA so I think not only did I learn a ton from from my own colleagues at Bain Capital, but but having the opportunity to to see other folks in action and that that consistent approach of focus and prioritization.
1: So you got all these business going on, and then you have this opportunity, <clears throat> right? And I think when most people think about DraftKings, they think about fantasy sports. It's the biggest. It's it's the best, right? And you all have done a phenomenal job. But is this something that you were interested in before you know you got involved with the business or the business was like, Jason, you're the man. Now go figure out fantasy sports. You know, I'll, if
0: I'm totally honest, I think I did like one season long fantasy <laughs> in my life.
1: And then Which, I, by the way, did you see any of the show that I did when I was doing some fantasy sports? I did, did you see the I, stuff I did? I, I did not. I did not. Oh, come on, Jason. You just want to watch some of the stuff that I did so you can like critique <laughs> Don't, critique don't my it's not, I mean, nothing this is personal. back in the day.
0: I, don't, I just don't watch a lot of <laughs> TV generally. But uh, so I was, it was. it was less about daily fantasy and more about what I saw on the sports betting and iGaming horizon and knowing that these guys as the, you know, for sure the daily fantasy leader and that competitive advantage that it, it brought them to pivot and transition into the sports betting. I just saw all that. I mean, to put it in perspective, I joined and I think we were live in one state for less than a year. With sports betting, mm. we're live in one state for iGaming in just about five, five months. And you know, we're now in 18 states, soon to be 23 states, and it's just been explosive growth. And it was really that that got me so fired up to come join Jason, Paul, and Matt and the rest of the team here. Just the the massive growth that I could see on the horizon.
1: The Pathfinders Podcast is presented to you by Ansarata. Ansarata is the modern deal and virtual data room technology designed to make M&A capital raising divestments, restructures, and IPOs as simple as possible. Ansarata has just launched Freemium with the world's first online data room quote. Now you can get a free data room and quote in just three clicks and just 15 seconds. There's no need to wait. Get your room open straight away no matter what stage you're at. Deal marketing, deal preparation, or due diligence. And here's the best bit. Usage fees only start when the deal goes live. All the top M&A firms and investment banks are jumping on it. That's because there is no risk, just reward. Pretty cool, right? Check it out at anserata.com slash quote. You know I like a winning team, so say it with me. anserata.com for your next winning outcome. I'm wondering, like back in... 2020 when you know you played a key role in DraftKings listing on Nasdaq you know following the SPAC merger and the Boston Business Journal quoted was saying it was like you said it was the right vehicle for us at the time so and this is what it, what they exactly said so I'm going to read it like tell us you know like the press said it was the deal of the year like how did you make that happen
0: well, there were a lot of people involved, and that, and that was definitely very nice of, of the BBJ to write that. It was, you know, it was a ton of work to put it in perspective. This was October 2019 through April 2020, deciding to go public via SPAC, raising the pipe. Remember, part mm-hmm. of the reason why the SPAC was the right vehicle is that we wanted to acquire SB Tech, and I'll come back to why SB Tech was important in a minute. But we we had to decided to do the SPAC, we've raised a pipe, we had to clo- you know, basically get to definitive documentation with the company we were going to acquire in parallel with the SPAC. We had to get all of our financials in order, the S4, effective with the SEC. We hosted an investor day on March 12th, 2020. March 11th is sort of wow. when the world shut down. I, I'll never forget this. March 11th oh, is the day. Oh, I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> March 11th is the day that the NBA season gets postponed. So it was wow. a pretty nuts time period. Wouldn't trade it for the world. It was an amazing experience. COVID happened March and April. I'm in the attic. My wife is putting food outside my door because I wasn't leaving the, the attic. We were just working nonstop during that period. So it was it was, like, it was an unbelievably busy but rewarding period of time. And just coming back to you know, why was the SPAC the right vehicle? Mm-hmm. And obviously, the SPAC craze took off in a big way after us, not because of us, but after us. And we we did it because we wanted to acquire SB Tech and access the public markets at the same time. And SB mm-hmm. Tech is, to put it shortly, is a bet engine technology provider. So they are the guys that actually run all of the bets that we offer on our app. And we were renting that technology at the time from one of the big global leaders in bed engine services. But we knew that if we wanted to be a real leader in this industry, we had to own our own technology so that we could drive differentiation. Back to my point around customer and being passionate about understanding and listening to your customers. We knew that innovation was going to play a big role in this industry, and we couldn't innovate on bets if we didn't own our own bet engine. So we wanted to acquire mm-hmm. SB Tech and go public simultaneously, which is why. For us, the SPAC was a was a really good vehicle.
1: And so the headlines keep popping up for you all as you guys are rolling up some really amazing businesses as you just recently completed the acquisition of Golden Nugget online. I mean, how is that going to impact DraftKings and the most important thing with any company is reaching those customer segments?
0: Yeah, it's sort of. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited about golden nugget. We closed it in May of this year, just a great team with, with Thomas winter coming on board as part of our executive team now. And I'll bring it back to my, maybe what's emerging as the theme of the day, which is just having a really clear value creation plan for any acquisition you're doing. And and for golden nugget, it was Mm -hmm. so, it made all the sense in the world, which is we knew we could do three things when we owned it. And there were three reasons why we were better together. One, we knew on the top line that our marketing scale, our marketing know-how could turbocharge that Golden Nugget brand and the revenues that came from it. Not only could we get just simple scale purchasing power on marketing assets, Mm. but we could, like I said, just bring all that muscle we have on understanding customers, media myths, knowing what what messages would resonate with that customer segment. So that was number one. We knew we could turbocharge the top line. Number two, we knew that we could improve the gross margin rate of that business because DraftKings, we have our own iGaming technology in-house, our iGaming aggregator. We have a lot of homegrown games where more than 50% of our iGaming business is on our own products that we create. So Mm -hmm. those are essentially free to us from a gross margin perspective, and we knew that we could get Golden Nugget onto our platform and because they were primarily renting. And number three, we knew that there was a little bit of g and optimization that could occur between the two businesses. That was the thesis and it's coming to life. We're well underway on the post-merger integration and, and super excited. And, and that that really feels like one where the outside-in diligence and underwriting has dovetailed really nicely into the post-merger value creation plan.
1: And as you are personally thinking about acquisitions and you're thinking about sort of like this world of m a of which you've come from, are these always like the principles that you have in the back of your mind? Or are there some other nuances that are incorporated into it from your own past experiences that kind of give you your own specific perspective that can help the business?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I, I think most importantly, it's when you're looking at something, it, it's about well, what do we what are we going to do with it? What can we do that nobody else can do? Mm-hmm. Why are these two businesses better together? And really articulating those three, four, five things really clearly, quantifying them, talking about what the synergized EBITDA, you know, synergy is a little bit of a buzzword, but it, it does mean something. And and why why <laughs> right. financially is this better together,
1: bringing mm. that all
0: the way back to valuation and, and what you're willing to pay for it? You shouldn't pay for those synergies because those are things that only you can bring to the table. So I, I'd say that it really is the core investment thesis has to be, has to revolve around those three, four, five things that that you think you can do that nobody else can do. And a little bit of that, that X factor too, which is, Hey, there could be a couple other exciting things that come with this deal that in and of themselves may not justify the acquisition, but once we have it, you might have a couple other exciting little tidbits that come with it as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I mean, agreeing to the deal is like the very beginning of like the relationship. Absolutely. And so, and when we think about like the deal making mindset, it's also like the post deal integration. So, how do you contemplate that? Because some situations it does really well, other times it's a little bit more challenging. I mean, you kind of go into it with a thought, but you know, with that deal making mindset, you always want something to end well in order to kind of add to everybody's bottom line. But how do you approach the post deal integration?
0: Absolutely, though. I mean, post-deal integration, bringing two companies together, it it takes a ton of energy. Things can go well, things can go wrong. What I'd say is it's got to be a combination of some clinical, tactical things you've got to get right, Mm -hmm. combined with that constant focus on that underwriting thesis or value creation plan, like why did we do this deal? So on the clinical side, I always talk about you got to get a few things right you got to get the people master right or employee master you got to get your customer master right your vendor master your product master you just got to you know bring the companies together from sort of how how the engine runs every single day and those four things are super important to get really crystal clear and clean as the two businesses come together and like employee master is mm-hmm. a really simple one which is you know bringing the two organizations together? Do, do we know who's reporting to who? Do we know the titles? Do we know the locations? Do we know their existing or new boss? Are they getting their paycheck from the same paycheck system that the, the acquiring company? Like All those things are super clinical and tactical, but you got to get all of that super right. But you can't lose focus of why we did this deal either. And you got to stay focused on on the Mm -hmm. you know the EBITDA mover needle movers as well. You got to do both parts really really well.
1: Because I think about it, you know, it's like you're you're in the honeymoon phase when everything starts to kind of come together, and then it really starts to work after after the deal gets consummated, and then you kind of you know put your heads down and say, okay, look, we did this in order to grow the business, so let's go right. And so the world of consolidation is happening all around your industry, especially sports betting and iGaming and it's going to shape the future of the industry. So what are your thoughts, you know, on this and what do you see some of the benefits of sports betting operators becoming, you know, the cornerstone of like broader sports media and entertainment ecosystems because, you know, I'm watching some of my friends that are joining some of the platforms and it's just like this interesting world that is ultimately colliding and I don't know if people would have thought about that 5 years ago. I mean, the whole industry is being disrupted.
0: Yeah. So First off, just in terms of the, the sports game sports betting and iGaming operator world, I think you're right. I think the consolidation will continue to happen. I think I think the people who are staying really close to it and paying close attention realize that, wow, this is actually pretty consolidated already, where the top three operators are, you know, roughly 80% of the market already. Mm. And then you do have a tail of of single-digit market share players that are are subscale. And look, I think, I think you're right. I think the consolidation will probably continue to occur. That doesn't mean that we're a consolidator, but the Mm. share will probably continue to consolidate to the big guys who have that they're typically described as having that in-house technology that I mentioned, some advantage customer acquisition play for us. Uh, That's the DFS database that we can cross sell from. We basically have a database of a lot of American sports fans and, we know their favorite teams, favorite sports, what time of the day they like to utilize the app. We have a lot of information on those folks. And that that's a real advantage when it comes to our acquisition. So there's a reason why the top three command so much of the market share. So, you know, who knows? But I think you're right. I think it continues to consolidate. And then in terms of your other question, just like the world of sports betting and sports media colliding, I, I think you're seeing it already. I think Mm-hmm. you know big picture this was really exciting for the media companies just it's well known that sports betting helps drive viewership and not just viewership broadly right like it drives viewership in the fourth quarter of a blowout because that over under <laughs> is still in right. play,
1: right <laughs> like it means something to you
0: right they're still right so you're tuned in all the way through you know the final whistle so I think I think the worlds are colliding, colliding already. There's a bunch of ex- exciting things that, that we're doing in terms of appealing to that that sports better with shows on advice. It sounds like we should have been broadcasting Dahani back in the day on your daily fantasy picks. <laughs> but more content like that, we're utilizing influencers on on their predictions, their parlay of the day already. So so I think a lot more to come, but 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 certainly uh, lots of reasons for those worlds to continue to collide.
1: How do you think about new technology developments? I mean, this is part of your background, and now you're kind of deep into sort of this gaming industry. I mean, you got to see some of the the tech that's out there impacting the way that you guys look at your business.
0: A- absolutely. I mean, there, there's there's a bunch of layers. I think the the simplest layer is constantly bringing new, exciting games to our customers, new game formats mm. for iGaming. We brought Rocket, which you should try one day. It's like one of our best-selling games for iGaming. We've got more same-game parlays on the sports betting side. So that's like one important but relatively simple way that we should constantly mm-hmm. be using technology to bring more and new, exciting things to our to our customers. We, we just launched... DraftKings Rainmakers, which is our NFT gamification product, uh, it's off to a fantastic start. And this is a way that you can use NFTs and open packs to get player cards mm. and enter contests to build a, a, a fantasy sports lineup. But you need that player card to build the lineups that you want. Mm. So, you know, you got to buy packs like when you and I were kids and we bought baseball cards in that moment of opening a pack and looking through and seeing who you you have. We've replicated that with, with NFTs, and, and that's a, a really new and exciting new vertical for us that we just launched, you know, in the last month. And, you know, I think there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff that could uh, come on the horizon, too.
1: I mean, the, the technology is just going in so many different directions, but it is, to your point, it's <clears throat> all about that fan engagement. It's all about, you know, how deep you can get into the game itself. It's about fourth and one in, in the yes. fourth quarter and you know the over under i mean it's just so much and i think technology or are they going
0: to run it are they going to pass it on fourth <laughs> right, of, right, right. Like, like very
1: very simple things so you know just just two more two more questions um serious one and then like a, a nice fun one as we close out for the pathfinders on this episode and i appreciate it again you know like you all are operating in you know more and more markets what are your thoughts in the way that States are opening up for business. And will this, you know, you think the trend will will continue. And what does that mean for DraftKings long term?
0: Yeah. So, you know, to put it in perspective, sports betting were alive in just about 40% of the US population already. It's been four years since Pasba was overturned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, roughly 10% a year. Wow. It's pretty fast. And really that's consistent with what we thought would happen over this Mm. time period and Mm. and that number i just threw out doesn't include the pipeline of states that have already legalized but haven't launched yet so we've got kansas
1: maryland Mm.
0: puerto rico ohio
1: massachusetts we we don't we don't have to worry about that state
0: (laughs) Uh, so kansas maryland puerto rico ohio massachusetts these have all legalized and we're, you know, as soon as the regulators, we, you know, all the licensing processes are done. Those are, you know, but they're just legalized pending launch. So mm. I, I absolutely see the trend continuing in when we talked to investors, we said, well, maybe, you know, 60 to 70% of the U S population will have access to legalized online sports betting. Mm. And we're approaching that pretty quickly and, and a, a real chance to surpass it.
1: Well, I, I see nothing but, uh, positive, positive growth and a strong, strong business. So I appreciate your continued efforts as uh, you bolster the business. The last question, we always talk about this on the Pathfinders is, um, we call it meals and deals, right? So what's, you know, tell us the story of your favorite deal and maybe like a, a, like a, a celebrated meal. Something, you know, maybe it was when SPAC happened, maybe it was, I don't know, kid's birthday, I don't know some type of deal. It could be all the way back to your McKinsey days or your Bain days, something that was your favorite deal or a celebratory meal.
0: Oh man, I'm not much of a foodie, so I don't think about food too much, but I'd have to say that was a pretty monumental day in in April of 2020 Mm. when that, that ticker changed to DKNG. But you know, that was the heart of the lockdown, the heart of the beginning. So I think it was Jason, but Jason sent a bottle of Dom to, to my house and said, you know, thank you. And so it's not really a meal, but but my wife and I did enjoy a bottle of champagne that night, and that bottle of champagne sits on our kitchen windowsill. So that, that's pretty memorable. We didn't really get to celebrate in person for another 15 or 16 months. Yeah. We did have a nice dinner in, in New York as the whole executive team, including the board, And uh, lots of investors who had been with us on the journey up until that point. So I've got that memory in my head, too.
1: Well, congratulations on all your success um, and your continued hard work. I appreciate all the words of advice and the way that you think about that deal-making mindset. And uh, thank you, Jason, for being with us on The Pathfinders. Thank
0: you, Dahani. Again, honored and humbled to have been considered for this. I hope your listeners didn't find that too boring.
1: They were taking notes meticulously. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jason. A special thanks again to Jason Park for being with us today. It's really amazing to see the work that he's doing to revolutionize the gaming industry and learn how DraftKings is coming at investing and in deal making from a whole new perspective. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Till next time, I'm Dahani Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders presented by Onserrata.